Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Sunday, October the 8th, 2023. On Sundays, of course, the courts are shut, but the prisons aren't, and America has always enjoyed, if that's the right word, the drama of law and jail, it's very much of a law and order or perhaps a law and disorder society. Uh, it's currently preoccupied with the trial of a certain Sam Bankman Freed. One person in on, on CNN suggests we are at a SBF cultural moment, whatever that means. Um, he's certainly quite a character and the whole trial has been turned into a mass drama. The Wall Street Journal even features um a piece uh, about uh, the people who are um prosecuting him meanwhile of course trump who is very skilled in in blurring the distinction between crime prison politics and society continues to be on trial there are ongoing new york fraud trial many others as well and seeing trump in in court is uh on, on the one hand, jarring, and on the other hand, I guess, inevitable. It's where he deserves to be. One day, perhaps, he'll end up in jail. But, of course, beyond these celebrity trials of billionaires and politicians, there is the real business of parole and prison. Uh, I think four million people are currently on parole in New York City, ordinary people that we don't hear about. One man who knows about those ordinary people all too well is my guest today, Vincent Schiraldi. He was um, the former commissioner of New York City Probation and Correction. Now he lives and works in Maryland, and he's the author of an extremely important new book, Mass Supervision, Probation, Parole, and the Illusion of Safety and Freedom. Uh, Vinny is joining us from his home uh, in Maryland. Uh, Vin, before we get on to the book and, and the real people on parole, um, how would you explain America's obsession with these celebrity criminal trials and investigations, whether it's SBF or, or Trump? There's always one of these things going on. You know, I think that in the 70s, we had a much more normal, whatever that is, relationship to crime and punishment. Our incarceration rates were similar to those of our Western allies. And, you know, we really kind of took a turn towards the politicization of crime and punishment during the 70s and have stayed that way ever since because it has an enormous political value to it. It, it really does topple presidents, presidential candidates, governors, mayors. Uh, and so, you know, we, we enjoyed this momentary bipartisan support for criminal justice reform you know, right before the pandemic and, you know, President Trump signed the Second Chance Act and it, you know, let tens of thousands of people out of federal prison. But I always wondered whether that was a mile wide and an inch thick. And that's the way it's seeming right now as we, uh, as, as crime ticks up and there's a bit more violence post-pandemic, uh, the politics around crime, the media coverage, it's all sort of shot back right up to the roof again. Yeah, it's the paranoia around crime. It, wouldn't it be fair to say, uh, Vinny, that in the 70s, there was, and, and your 
the former um, guy in New York. You were born in Brooklyn, so you're all too familiar with the streets of New York, both as a citizen and as a, uh, a public servant. That there was a spike, a radical spike in crime in um, in many urban centers, particularly in New York in the 1970s, and that in it in itself triggered the neoliberal political and economic response. It triggered Reagan. It, it triggered ultimately uh, Trump. Oh, yeah. I mean, there was certainly an increase in crime in the 70s, 80s. Um, you know, I lived in Brooklyn then and my apartment was broken into twice. My car was broken into the year after I moved away from Brooklyn, which was 1985. Uh, my landlady's son killed his daughter in the basement of our building. And it was only a three apartment building in a not a dangerous neighborhood. So yeah, it was it was pretty crazy back then. And I think, you know, before Reagan, Richard Nixon really kind of captured mm. it. You know, it was uh, the, the South was reliably democratic, so were the suburbs up north. And with the civil rights protests, with the uh, anti-war protests, with the beginning of an increase in crime, Nixon realized that uh, this level of disorder was making those reliably Democrat strongholds vulnerable. And so they launched what they call the Southern Strategy. Nixon launched the War on Drugs in 1972. And his top aides, Haldeman and Ehrlichman, later said, we absolutely knew we were lying about this issue, uh, but we knew we couldn't make it illegal to be black or mm. against the war. So we created a sort of a dog whistle approach where we would talk about crime and poverty instead of race. And then we were able to you know, disrupt their meetings, arrest their leaders, break into their homes. Literal, that's almost a literal quote. And from that point until the year 2008, uh, prison populations grew every year. So we had a typical, if you will, a normal um, by Western standards incarceration rate back in the 70s. By 2008, our incarceration rate was five to 10 times what our Western allies was. And we had an eightfold increase in the number of people we put in prison. There seems to have been, uh, Vinny, some sort of reshaping of the American state in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Uh, uh, Beverly Gage's book on J. Edgar Hoover is a remarkable achievement. I think it won the Pulitzer Prize last year. I don't know if you're familiar with it. But certainly, J. Edgar Hoover's F, uh, was very close to Nixon. I think Hoover was Nixon's closest friend. Can we see the emergence with Hoover, with the G-Men, with Nixon, of a new kind of, if not military industrial complex that Eisenhower defined, but a prison industrial complex? Yeah, I mean, you know, we've always been a much more decentralized country than the United Kingdom or at least, you know, England and Scotland and Wales. Um, and so before the 50s, let's say, um, uh, criminal justice policy was super local and small, way smaller than it is now. Prison budgets were nothing in, this, in most state budgets. And then the 50s, there, were a lot, there was a lot of uh, civil unrest because uh, black soldiers, at least part of the reason was black soldiers were returning from the war and they really didn't want to, you know, they had fought for our country. They didn't want to go back to the second-class status that they held before the war. And certainly their kids, uh, the next generation, uh, were, were not going to stand for this. And so um, 
So, so the, there was actually a more of a federalization of law enforcement, ironically, uh, to stop uh, white um, uh, violence against black protesters, against blacks returning from the war who were trying to occupy jobs and factories. And so, you know, this this apparatus that didn't exist before to, at a federal level to to police um, our citizenry was created. And then when Nixon did that switch in the 1970s, uh, that apparatus went from something that was at least ostensibly set up to protect uh, people of color to something that was used to arrest and imprison people of color. And I mean, the, the incarceration rate numbers for black people soared during the uptick of mass incarceration is still crazy high. One statistic my colleague Bruce Western found is that among black men who don't complete high school, uh, 70%, 70%, seven out of 10 young men who don't complete high school go to prison by the time they're in their mid thirties in the United States. So jobs in neighborhoods like mine that you could have without a high school diploma, because I had three factories on my block in Brooklyn, uh, went away. They either were automated out of existence or they moved overseas. Uh, and um, so those things occupied particularly young men. Lots of my buddies, when I graduated high school in 1977, they went into factory work. And by the time I graduated college, these guys had homes, they had wives often, uh, they had kids, uh, they had begun adult life. And you know, I pick on men because we are 85% of the prison population and, and the crime problem. So, you know, we stopped occupying productively young black men and young white men, but white men went to college and some black men didn't graduate high school and many of them went to prison. Has it caught up, Vinny, uh, over the last 10 or 15 years with the deindustrialization of America, with uh, the, uh, the new... Uh, afflictions of drug which drugs which seem to affect the white community as much as the blacks uh, or is it still essentially uh, an apartheid system when it comes to crime and punishment in america the number of people in prison has dropped considerably i think it's more than a quarter down from its peak in 2008 and actually interestingly disproportionately better for black people so but don't pop any champagne cork. So instead of being locked up at six to seven times the rate of white people, black people are locked up at five to six times the rate of white people. But still, a step in the right direction. We're just so mired, deeply mired in mass incarceration and mass supervision that nobody in this generation can remember what I just said. I mean, I'm an old guy in it, and I'm only 64, and I started this in this field in 1980 and you know, literally every year for almost the first 30 years of my work, the prison population grew. And so uh, young people today and elected officials, they don't really have a pre-mass incarceration, pre-mass supervision vision. And so it's hard for them to imagine a world unless they go to Europe, right? Uh, in which there aren't so many people behind bars, so many people under supervision. Um, and it's, you know, it's a little difficult to tell Americans, look at Sweden. It, they, they really don't want to do that. They don't even really want to look at England, but they definitely don't want to look at Sweden. 
when we, we, we do many shows, Vinny, about America, we talk about health care and the catastrophe there, inequality and the catastrophe there. But it seems as if this issue is the most shameful one in, in, in contemporary America and perhaps historically and perhaps the most tragic element of this tragedy is that no one really sees it. Guys like you do, you write books, sometimes you come on shows like this. But for most people, most middle class, upper middle class, particularly upper middle class white people, this is entirely invisible, isn't it? Well, that's where I think things have changed a little bit. And I'll, 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 I'll give you my nuanced thought about that. I think that on the probation and parole issue, part of the reason I wrote this book is that nobody sees it. It's really not been, it's not captured the imagination of, of, of regular citizens, even advocates, researchers, philanthropy, um, haven't, and policymakers haven't really grasped onto the notion that there are 4 million people in the United States that are either on probation and parole and that that's twice as many people as are locked up in all of our massive prisons and jails. So it's not like we have a small system. Uh, we have a big system and twice as many people are on probation and parole. And then one out of every four people who go to prison in America go not because of a new crime, but because of some technical violation of probation and parole, skipping a meeting with their PO or staying out past curfew or drug testing positive for drugs, stuff like that, right? So that is way under the radar. And part of the reason I wrote the book is to elevate it. The, the prison stuff, I think, has has gotten more attention um, over the last decade plus. When my kids, my kids are in their 30s now. When I was running Washington, D.C.'s juvenile system in, uh, in uh, you know, 2005 to 2010, and my kids were in high school, I was the weird dad. I was the dad who was working with criminals. And, you know, her friends, you know, it was hard to explain why I would do such a thing. Now, I'm the cool dad. And my daughter's and son's friends are sending me their resumes to get jobs helping to fight against mass incarceration. So this new generation, I have to have some hope. Please, Andrew, let me have some hope here. <laughs> I think this new generation is paying way more attention to this issue than my generation did and yours uh, uh, in the U.S., of course. Um, and, and I think they're pushing back in ways that they have, that mine did not on the prison stuff. And I would like them to add probation and parole to their list of, of, of things to advocate on. We are speaking with Vincent Schiraldi, the author of Mass Supervision, Probation, Parole, and the Illusion of Safety and Freedom. Uh, Vinny, as you suggested, there are 4 million people any given day on parole in what New York City. No, um, no, the whole U.S. The whole of the U.S. So, right. yeah, it couldn't be New York City. Um, even that would be too shocking. What does that mean to be on probation? Right. So now this thing, probation and parole start in the 1840s. Probation in the U.S. with a guy named John Augustus, a bootmaker who's part of the temperance movement. Uh, and he starts to bail people out and tell the judges, I'll work with this person for a few months and bring him back in better shape. And if I do, I want you to refund the bail and let the person go free. Uh, and then over in Australia, which was a penal colony of the UK at the time, uh, uh, a prison warden named Alexander McConaughey uh, is running in Norfolk prison and decides that instead of people just doing flat sentences a year, three years, five years, he will let them earn their way out 
of prison uh, by engaging in programming and good behavior, and then their release will be conditional upon release. Uh, then they'll be watched again by volunteers. Uh, and he calls that ticket of leave, but uh, the French version, uh, 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 their term stuck, it was parole, which is the French word for word. You give your word when you leave prison to be good. And so in the 1840s, both of these things start. Eventually it migrates to Ireland and then from Ireland to the US in the 1880s. And they're, they're, they're overtly helpful community-driven volunteer probation and parole officers trying to help people turn their lives around. And it kind of stays that way based on a rehabilitative ethic up until the 1970s, like I said. And then it takes this sharp turn to the more punitive. The whole system does. Prisons, which we used to call penitentiaries, right, just become places of punishment. And now probation and parole are kind of stuck out there because all of the, their, their whole existence is based on the notion that they're going to help turn people's lives around. And now rehabilitation has become a dirty word. So probation and parole commissioners pivoted. They started to call themselves community corrections. They put electronic monitors on people. They started probation out with six months in jail first to shock people before they could get on probation. And they started to add multiple conditions, dozens of conditions which have ostensibly nothing to do with either rehabilitation or public safety onto the lives of people under their supervision combined with a hair trigger back to imprisonment. So I'll give you an example. I was on a panel not long ago with a guy who was, had been out on parole in New York, uh, fell in love with a woman who also had a, a criminal record, married that woman, and gets, uh, got a one-year revocation to prison for associating with somebody else with a criminal record. Another guy comes out, uh, gets referred to a, a job program by his parole officer. They actually get him a job at night, good tech job that's paying well above minimum wage. He asks his PO, can I stay out past curfew? Yes, you can. Next PO says yes. Next PO says yes. Fourth PO comes in, doesn't talk to him, just goes and knocks on his door. After curfew, he's not home. She issues a warrant for his arrest. He goes into the deadly Rikers Island jail for six weeks while they figure out he wasn't doing anything wrong. And, you know, he told me, look, I when I went into jail, I had a job, a girlfriend, an apartment, and a car. Six weeks later, I came out, I had none of those things. So this is the kind of drip, 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 risk-averse um, project that probation and parole, which started as a helpful alternative to incarceration, have now become. Yeah, and the drip, drip, drip is in where where people's real people's real lives are completely ruined. Very much in contrast with the the celebrity trials of people like Trump and Sam Bankman Fried. Um, we talked about the seventies and the profound shift in the nature of the the, the the criminal justice system, if or perhaps the criminal injustice system. You wrote an interesting piece, which was uh, which was taken from the book in Literary Hub um, last month about parole for pay. Has the system essentially been turned into a, a, a neoliberal arm of the state, a way of making money from poor, powerless people? Yeah, you know, I, I knew about this when I started as commissioner of probation, but it, it really kind of hit me right away when I started, because I started in February of 2010, which is about a year and a half after the Great Recession, which hits New York City pretty hard because, you know, stocks and real estate are major drivers of New York's tax base. 
So we're all taking cuts, all of us departments. And uh, it's February, which is budget season. My budget people come to me and they say, um, we've taken six cuts uh, since the, the, the recession started. And now we're being asked to take another cut. And the only thing we think we can do is charge people to be on probation. Now, this is a week into my job and I've got my testimony in two weeks. And I'm like, well, that's crazy because these guys can't pay it. And then we're going to revoke them and lock them up if they don't pay. And that's going to cost the city way more than not getting these fees in the first place. And, and they said that's true, but that doesn't come out of our budget. That comes out of the Department of Corrections budget. So it, it gives us the ability to take our, our cut. And I said, well, I, I don't care. That's it's a stupid idea. I'm not going to do it. What's plan B? And plan B was to lay off staff. And, and I think they almost put that in front of me thinking, no way he's going to do that. Um, but we had dropped, the number of people on probation had dropped from like 80,000 to 30,000 at that point in New York City. We had never had a, a staffing cut. And I was like, I think we could probably afford a staffing cut. So that's what we did. And so I, and, and the reason I say that is because when I was on the outside, I thought this was all animus. Right. It was all we hate these guys and we're going to pick their pockets. I think for for my budget people it was more like we're the good guys. We want to keep our good guy staff employed. And if that means we have to pick their pockets, we pick their pockets. So be it. Um, so, yeah, now every state allows you to charge for people to be on probation. Some states allow private companies to run probation. I mean, it's rather like the privatization of the jails. It always part of the same process. It's, it's a little worse because you know, now you're some small county and the state, let's say Georgia, the state of Georgia pays for felony probation. That's a state function. But misdemeanor probation, lower, lower level crimes, that's all on the counties. So now let's imagine I was, I didn't care about this. I'm a retired probation commissioner. I could go to county administrators and say, hey, you're paying for a whole misdemeanor probation department and that costs you this many million dollars a year. I'll do it for free. You can just lay all those people off and I will run a probation department that doesn't cost you anything because I'll, I'll charge what I call user fees to the people under supervision uh, and they'll just pay for the whole department. In fact, not only that, I'll get so much money out of them, I'll kick a couple of hundred thousand dollars back to you guys every year. And so, God knows, uh, and, and God knows what AI will do to all this, make it even more quote unquote inefficient. Um, efficient, yeah. sorry, not inefficient. Uh, let's put briefly uh, a human face on this. In your book, you write about a man called Thomas Barrett. Tell us his story. Uh, just personalize it to show what a, what a catastrophic system this is. Yeah, so Thomas Barrett was a pharmacist, became addicted to his, the drugs that he was. Was he white or black? White guy, yeah. Became addicted to the drugs he was dispensing down in, in uh, Georgia. And um, loses his job, loses his family, uh, spirals down and, and becomes uh, an alcoholic. Swipes a $2 beer from a grocery store, gets arrested for that. The judge orders a fine. Uh, he doesn't get representation from a public defender because even that you have to pay for, 50 bucks, even if you're indigent, right? So he doesn't have that 50 bucks. He decides to represent himself. The judge fines him an amount that he can't pay. Now, here's where private probation kicks in. So if me and Thomas Barrett went to court and I had the exact same fine and I could pay it, I'd never be on probation. I would just pay it and go my way. But Barrett doesn't have that money. So the court puts him on private probation and, a, and sets up a payment plan. Now, private probation is going to supervise that. Well, 
He couldn't afford the fine, so he certainly can't afford the monthly fees to probation. And that probation company adds electronic monitoring to him and drug testing, both of which he has to pay for. So now he's falling deeper and deeper into debt. He starts to sell his blood plasma for uh, uh, to, to make money to pay his fees and his fines that are now accumulating. Uh, he's still falling behind. He starts skipping meals because he can't afford them. But then he's getting weak, which means he can't sell blood. So finally, it just all becomes too much for him. And he just goes into probation and says, I'm done. I can't afford it. And they, they lock them up. They lock them up for a year. And this was his, his, his arrears had risen to $1,000 by that point on a $2 can of beer theft. And I think the original fine was either $50 or $100. Um, so that's, a, that's the kind of recidivism trap and, 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 and financial trap that some of these, uh, some of these departments put people yeah, in. Yeah, I'm talking about the destruction of, of, of a life. This person will probably, I mean, America prides itself on second chances, whatever Scott Fitzgerald said or wrote. But the reality is guys like Thomas Barron almost never come back, do they? You know, it's a mixed bag, but it, it's certainly like the department, the, the system doesn't help them come back. It, to the degree they do, it's because it's, it's a harsh really sort of uh, exposure to the, to the, uh, to the, it's a harshest version possible of the. Uh, I mean, it's Victorian. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you it, mentioned it, earlier, um, Vinny, that 85% of, of, parolists and people put in jail, I think, are men. But of course, that still leaves 15% as women. We shouldn't forget about them. Hopefully, we won't forget about them. You wrote uh, in your book about a, a woman who experienced uh, Rikers Island jail. You also wrote a piece yourself about why even you, a hardened uh, guy who's been on the inside and lots of different fronts, you, you weren't ready for Rikers jail. Tell us about this particular case and the, the fate of the, the 15% of, of, of women uh, in, in, in the system. Yeah, so I, I, I start probation. Mayor Bloomberg hires me to run the probation department. So I do a listening tour. I'm going around from office to office, sitting with my staff, finding out what's going on. It was fa absolutely fascinating. Staff are saying that this is mostly black and Latino staff uh, supervising mostly black and Latino clients. And several of them said to me, we practice fear probation here. We, we are incarcerating people who look like us because if we don't and something goes wrong, you will throw us under the bus. You'll fire us, you humiliate us, you'll transfer us. Um, and so there was an, an enormous amount of rage and depression amongst my staff about this and all the many, many rules that they had to follow that made no sense from the standpoint of rehabilitation but they were following them because they had no choice in, in their view. And so while I was doing one of those tours, people said, why don't you go into court? Because the probation officer was in the same building as the courthouse because there's several probation cases being heard and you can observe. So I go in and when I enter, this woman is convulsed in tears saying that she wants the judge to revoke her probation and send her to jail because She's got a five-year-old daughter, and that girl, uh, she cannot bring her to her meetings with her probation officer. She lives in Harlem. Probation office is way downtown, so like an hour, an hour and a half subway ride. Um, and so she's running out of favors now with her mother and her grandmother and her aunt and her neighbors 
to watch her daughter. Um, and, and, but her, her the, the rule is, is fixed. She cannot come to court. Uh, I mean, come to the probation department. So um, she, she doesn't know what else to do. She can't leave a five-year-old alone. So she's like, forget it. Just send me to jail for six months, judge, and then then take me off probation. And that's actually what ended up happening to the violent, notorious Rikers Island jail. This woman would prefer that to being on my probation. Shocking story. Uh, we are talking with Vincent Chiraldi, a very important public servant in the United States on the East Coast, began life uh, in Brooklyn, now is in Maryland. He has a very important new book out, Mass Supervision, Probation, Parole, and the Illusion of Safety and Freedom. Vince, as, as you know, crime rates, and this is again hardly surprising <laughs> in spite of all the paranoia about crime. I know this in, in, in San Francisco. People are paranoid about crime out here. But it still seems to me, I mean, maybe I'm tempting fate to be a pretty safe city. Um, you know that uh, that society's assumptions on youth violence are, are pretty much wrong. Youth crime is down. So, so given the rottenness of the system and the reality of the, 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 the criminal, this quote unquote criminal system, what can be done here? How are we going to dig ourselves out of this hole? So I think that there's a couple of things that have begun to be done, and I think that we really need to do much more on it. And, and I focus in the book, of course, on probation and parole. But similar, similarly, I think we could do things with prisons. We spend, the bad news and the good news is the U.S. spends just enormous amounts of money, hundreds of billions of dollars on its prison system just on technical probation and parole violations. Every year we spend almost $3 billion with a B dollars. When we looked at parole violations in the state of New York, it was over $600 million a year that the state was spending on them. So that's bad news. But the good news is if you believe that helping people turn their lives around, providing them with housing, helping them find jobs, helping educate them, helping them with their mental health or drug problems could actually have a, a, a salient impact on crime, there's money that we could and should be able to transfer. So what I say in the book is let's substantially reduce or even for some populations eliminate probation and parole supervision, capture the money, and then work with those folks' communities where they come from because they're coming from a handful of communities. They don't come from every part of New York City or Chicago or L.A. They come from a handful of neighborhoods. Let's work with those neighborhoods and say, what does safety look like for you? Because we got a suitcase full of money attached to each one of these guys. Each one of these guys that we technically violate and send to prison costs you $50,000, $70,000. Imagine they had that suitcase of resources that they could bring home and say, okay, here's 60000 bucks. Now, neighborhood, what do you want done with this guy? Not, we'll, we'll spend 60000 to put him in prison, but if he comes home, he's going to be hanging on a street corner or you have to run a big sale to find him a, an apartment. No, we'll, we'll bring those resources, those same resources back to your neighborhood. That's what I'm proposing. I'm proposing we either reduce this or in some cases eliminate it. We don't need misdemeanor supervision. I don't think it does a damn thing. Capture those savings, put them into the neighborhoods where these problems are occurring, and measure the outcomes. Let's compare it to what happens before or even in a different part of town uh, when people are on misdemeanor supervision. I cannot imagine that that amount of money put to better use 
is going to have any worse outcomes than what we're doing right now. You said you work for Bloomberg. I assume you spent some time with him about as centrist and technocratic as you can get in American politics. Did this issue resonate with him? Did he care, do you think? You know, it was really interesting. I don't think he was energized um, by uh, by this issue. You know, I, you know when, when he interviewed me, like he was far, far more interested in what high school and college I went to than he was about probation. He could barely look at me when we had to actually talk about probation. Why? Because he was bored, do you think? He just didn't care? Yeah. I mean, you know, he had been under pressure to hire people from the city. And finally, he had one, right? With, well, complete with the Brooklyn accent named Vinny. I mean, it was perfect, right? But then I was like, okay, uh, what do you think about probation? You know, I said, not really much, Mr. Mayor. You know, it's it's a poor service given to poor people. Most politicians don't really care about it. Uh, and he said, well, tell me more. I said, well, imagine I came to you and said, here's $80 million, my budget, and 30,000 troubled and troubling souls, which was the caseload of my, my department. And you could do anything you want with that $80 million to make this problem better. I'm pretty sure what you wouldn't do is run out and hire a thousand civil service protected bureaucrats to have them piss in a cup once a week and tell them to go forth and sin no more. He said, no, I certainly wouldn't do that. And I said, well, you know, I haven't evaluated your department. I don't even live in New York City, but I'll bet that's what you've got right now. And he turned, there were three deputy mayors in the room as part of the interview process. And he looked at them and they said, yeah, that's pretty much what we got right now. And so then it was really kind of a brawl broke out. You know, we were spitballing. We should do this. We should do that. And that's what I think we really should do. I think we should do zero-based budgeting, if you will, on probation and parole. Let's imagine it didn't exist. Let's look at the actual problem and what we would like to do with that problem and then say, what solution should we apply? I'm betting most elected officials wouldn't say, let's invent probation. Speaking of elected officials, um, what kind of uh, how how high up can this issue reach in terms of reform? Has, has Joe Biden dealt with it? He's from your neck of the woods. I mean, he's a man who seems certainly to be affected by the kinds of human stories of men like Thomas Barrett. Does this resonate in any way with with Biden or his administration? Um, you know, he's appointed a lot of really good people to the Justice Department that are funding something called justice reinvestment, where the theory behind it is to capture the savings from reducing prison populations and put them into community programs and services. So that's happening under his, uh, under his leadership. I think that when the pandemic occurred and crime spiked, the energy behind it in the Democratic Party for addressing this issue ebbed. And that, Did it that's spike under COVID? I thought, it, I thought the reverse was true. People didn't go out. Uh, it plunged initially and then started coming up. Um, so initially, the first year, crime went way down. But then it started, there was a lot of, I think, emotional tumult and shootings really have increased in a lot of cities. Now, some of them are starting to come back down again. But, you know, you see the headlines in New York City. People are afraid. Uh, and so it's always there's always a lag, by the way. So once crime goes up, the media covers it. You know, and the media the, loves crime. And of course, let's I don't always like to talk about Trump, but let's end with him. Um, he's in court. He seems 
naturally to be in court. Maybe he spent his whole life one way or the other kind of in court. And he's probably end his life in court. If he's reelected, um, Vinny, he, he runs on the fantasy platform of imagining all these criminals around the place, people of uh, illegal immigrants and uh, people of, 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 of brown and black skin. If Trump is reelected, we know that he, he, he and perhaps many of his supporters don't operate on the kind of scientific data that you and I do. What could happen? to your probation and parole system? I think there's going to be some, some sort of return to the, to the bad old days of the 90s. I think, I think that's something to worry about. Now, Trump did advocate for and sign the Second Chance Act. Like I said, it reduced the number of people in prison. He was pretty proud of that. Van Jones, the CNN commentator, uh, was sort of helped uh, partner with Jared Kushner to get that to happen, whether that's the Trump we see um, if he gets reelected or not, I think I think is anybody's guess. And when it comes to mass supervision and his obsession with illegal immigration, could these two spheres blur? Yeah, I, you know, I think I think a supervision state is not is not out of the question, even more than we already have.